that talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome to Buckeye Retalkables. Something new we're bringing to you, and I could not be more excited. Doug Maurice, Nathan Baird, Stephen Means from Cleveland.com. We are re-watching old football games and talking about them. And as far as I know, we have invented that concept. I do not believe this has ever been done. I don't think anyone in the history of the world has ever watched something that already happened and then talked about it. Steven, do you feel groundbreaking with what we're doing here on Buckeye Retalkables? I think it's crazy that we've gotten to 2020 and someone has just now come up with this idea. Yeah, this is completely original. Um, I've never seen it before in my life. And so, wow, I think, wow, this is amazing. We should have came up with this sooner. Nathan, I, do you feel like we're going to be rich off of this stuff? Yeah, I, I, I especially like how we, we really went out on a limb with what we named it as a completely out of left field, of no, bearing no resemblance to anything else. Look, it's a copycat league. It's like, you know, college football, they start playing spread offenses and then it migrates up to the NFL. That's what we're doing here. It's a copycat league. Yeah, we're the people who like started running the spread six years after Urban Meyer was like, oh, get players in space. That's a good idea. So listen, we stole it from Bill Simmons and everybody else who's doing it. But we're going to have fun. And we let our tech subscribers vote on which game to play. Nathan went through or which game to talk about. Nathan went through and came up with three season openers. And then we put it out to the tech subscribers in an overwhelming vote. We are doing the 2015 opener against Virginia Tech. There's actually not a great list of fantastically interesting Ohio State openers. Lots of time the opener is Eastern Michigan Tech. So this is a good one. There's a lot that goes into this. We came up with categories, again, with the help of our tech subscribers. We're shooting to go like an hour and a half on this. So this game is on YouTube. We're going to keep doing this as long as there aren't football games on Saturdays. And then I think if it goes well, and I kind of liked it, We'll go into the offseason. We might end up doing a lot of these, but we're going to always, as long as we can, make it a thing where it's on YouTube or it's easily accessible, first of all, for us to watch it, but then for you guys at home to also watch it, maybe watch it first and then listen to the podcast. It's not going to like sync up. It's not like you want to have this on necessarily during the podcast because it's not quarter by quarter, play by play. It's categories of the breakdown. So um, I really enjoyed it. And I'll tell you, we have the categories. My instinct, because I'm the only one of the three that covered it for us, because I'm old, and this is going to be the case a lot. My instinct is to just have me go through my categories and give my answers, and you guys go, uh huh. Because, like, I'm so, I'm like, oh my God. I, but actually, I then thought, no, Doug, you shouldn't do all the talking because. We got more notes the other day that the, you know, the last podcast that I wasn't part of. People are like, man, it's nice to have a break from Doug. I actually am very interested in your views because, Stephen, you, you may have watched this when it happened just as an interested observer of somebody who grew up around Ohio State football. Nathan, you may have watched it because it was a big college football game on Monday night on Labor Day in 2015, but neither of you covered it. I am actually fascinated to see what you guys think of everything because I know what I think. I really want to hear. So I think it's going to be fantastic. I think the, you know, most of the people listening to this watched it live as an Ohio State fan. So I think you two guys are going to bring great perspective to this. So let's set this up briefly. We come into this. Ohio State is a defending national champion. It is the second game of the Virginia Tech home and home. They lost to Virginia Tech, their only loss of 2014. They go on and win the national championship. So this is weirdly 
it's the debut of the next season national champs who brought practically everybody back. Yet also it's a revenge game on the road in Blacksburg, enter Sandman, all this kind of stuff. And we don't know who the quarterback is. So one thing we're going to always do here is do a little bit of research into what we were writing and saying at the moment. Just quickly, you guys, again, Nathan, especially Nathan, you understand, like, we did not know who the quarterback was. Did that come through to you in this broadcast? And like, did that blow your mind that they were defending national champions? And it was literally like, we don't know who's coming on the field. It was really the number one thing I wanted to ask you about, just that the the lead up to that game time announcement. And, you know, I think back to, you know, having covered now a season of Ohio State football, obviously having covered teams before that. But sometimes you have that where it's like, oh, is so-and-so going to play today? He's questionable, whatever. And you're down and you're trying to watch the, 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 the pregame warmups to either see if they're out there at all or if they are, how do they look? You're trying to pick up these little clues. So it's something that we're not necessarily unaccustomed to in general but this this concept that until the first snap of the game you didn't know who was going to be the starting quarterback is astonishing to me and 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 also I think it leads us into it there's a larger discussion beyond that about whether this would ever really kind of happen again the same way because we are just such you know six years down the line five years down the line I feel like we've taken such another jump into like transfer culture or whatever. I know that for, for these guys, it's a different situation as far as who they were for Ohio state. And he, you know, Barrett's probably not just going to to bolt in that situation, but um, I, I don't know if you, how many, how often in the future you'd have like two veteran quarterbacks or a veteran quarterback who goes into after his whole career goes into the first game of that last year. And it's like, man, maybe he'll play. I don't know. It was bonkers. And we'll get into that more. We can't avoid that. But I want to go through just to real quickly some of the things we wrote beforehand. That year, that was me and Ari and Bill were covering the team. And we did a hot list. It was such a quarterback battle the whole year. We did, we called it the quarterback hot list. And all during training camp, we constantly updated the three of us who we thought the starting quarterback was going to wind up being. We did six hot lists over the course of that preseason. And we, the last one, the week of the game, these were the percentages on who we thought the quarterback would be. Bill Landis thought it was 81% JT Barrett. Ari Wasserman thought it was 85% JT Barrett. And Doug Maurice thought it was 92% JT Barrett. That's how certain we were and how wrong we were. So I will tell you, it was like such a thing to find out who's it going to be. And Urban kept saying, we're going to, we're going to just have a guy. We'll have them both on the sideline. We'll have somebody go out. And you were trying to find out well, what I want to find out beforehand. So I can remember being in the press box at the game and texting Martin Jarmond, who was the assistant athletic director at the time, who was down on the field and is now the one on to become the athletic director at Boston College and is now the athletic director at UCLA and was a fine fella. And I liked Martin. And I was like, hey, Martin, like, how's it going down there? We know who the quarterback's going to be. And it's one of those when, like, you text somebody who you're hoping they'll tell you something and, and they respond with something that's like, who knows, sure is exciting, exclamation point. And it was like, <laughs> thank you for nothing. And then I do remember very specifically, Joe Shad was at ESPN at the time, was a national college football writer. And I know for a fact, and I'm going to start spilling stuff like this on these rewatchables when I have stuff to spill it, because I don't care. Um, For some reason, he was buddies with Tim Beck. And so Joe Shad like broke it because Tim Beck, incompetent quarterbacks coach, told Joe Shad from ESPN who the starting quarterback was going to be. And it was like, it's going to be Cardale. And we were like, what? 
So that was what it was like. It's like, hey, well, what, is your, what is your job professionally? Uh, well, I cover the world, the national champion, Ohio State Buckeyes. Hey, do you have any idea who's the starting quarterback? No, I do not. I am terrible at my job. I have not been able to find that out for six weeks. So it was also an ESPN broadcast. They are often yeah, well, fed those things leading into those games. But I just blame Tim Beck. So um, that's fine. I, so I will say, and the other thing, the big thing going into that and, and try, we want to give you a sense of like where people's heads were. I did, we, we did a thing back then. We called it five reasons Ohio state will win and five reasons the opponent will win. And we always did it each week. We did both sides of it. And the five reasons that Ohio state will lose to the weekly opponent drove readers nuts. Oh my God. We did five reasons. Hawaii will beat Ohio state. And it drove people crazy. And I think the, the, the week we did the five reasons Hawaii will beat Ohio State, I think Landis just did five vacation tips if you go to Hawaii where you should go. But it was fun. It was interesting. It, it got people to read it. But I did. So that week, Landis did the why Ohio State will win. And I did why Virginia Tech will win. And I focused everything on the play calling change and the idea of Ed Warner taking over as a primary call play caller in conjunction with Tim Beck. Tom Herman had left. Ed Warner was still the offensive line coach. They still had him down on the field. Tom Herman the year before, and most offensive play callers are calling the game from the press box. Ed Warner was going to be on the sideline. That was an issue that they were worried about. That was an issue that I was worried about. And that turned out to be an issue. And in conclusion, I want to say that my outrageous prediction that week, and we still do those, was that Ohio State would trail at the half. Spoiler alert, they did. And I picked Ohio State to win 38-28 in a close game. And spoiler alert, that turned out to be pretty close. So also during the course of these rewatchables, if I ever happen to be right, I'm going to pound that home because I'm wrong so often. So that was the scene. Play calling change. Didn't know who the quarterback was going to be. Those were the two big main stories of the game. But before we get into it, I do, Nathan, do you remember watching this? Did you watch it just as a, because again, the ACC has a contract with ESPN where they're the best ACC opener is always they, they move it to Labor Day night, that Monday. It's like a single window. So this was a big-time national game. Nathan, do you think you watched it? Do you have any memory of this before you rewatched it for this, this project? I definitely have memory of the purgatory that everyone was in as far as who was going to start this game. I'm fairly certain I watched some or all of this game, but I don't really remember this game. Steven, did you watch it? Yeah, I watched it in my apartment in college. And I remember, first of all, can we, he, he literally walked up to one of them on the sideline and whispered, go in the game. And that's how, that's how they found out they were the starter. I mean, you look at the, you look at the pregame huddle. It's like they're all <laughs> in there together. And then Cardale came in. Spoiler alert. I'm not going to say spoiler alert anymore. You guys watch the five. Weeks. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that. <laughs> but then also, I just remember like, the excitement of Braxton Miller as a wide receiver and how explosive he could be. And he was everything in that in the first game. Doug, do right. you think it was right before they went in that they actually found out, or oh, was God. it just a smoke screen that they were told earlier in the week so that they could prepare? Well, I said on the ESPN broadcast that Urban told them on Saturday. Okay. Uh, no, not on Saturday. Urban told them on like Wednesday or Thursday, but he didn't tell the rest of the team. So the gotcha. quarterbacks knew. But also, and then Urban was saying like they figured it out because, you know, they did practice. reps and practice, <laughs> and Cardale took them. And even before the game, Cardale's taking the first team reps. But we were like watching. Cardale take the first team reps and we were like, wow, Urban is really diving in on this camouflage here. He's like, Cardale <laughs> repping with the ones, you, you tricky, tricky guy. Um, all right, so we're going to go through our categories. That was the narrative introduction. This is category number one. And again, I think I'm going to let you guys talk a lot first because 
then I'll come in with the old guy stuff, having covered it. Category one is who owned the game? And Steven, we'll start with you. Oh, by the way, let's take this off care. Uh, this is off topic. We'll, we'll, of course, leave it in because we don't edit anything. Unless it really get, gets really long and then I'll, I will actually edit it out. If you have an answer for a later category, but someone starts talking about it sooner, start talking about it. And then when we get to your category, we'll say, oh, we already covered that. But I don't want to have three different discussions about the quarterback situation. Whenever that, that topic comes up because someone else broached it in an earlier category, just go all in with your discussion then, right? That's a little behind the scenes for the people at home. You guys agree with that? We can't, we just got to keep it. You know, the categories are for fun, but we got to keep it tight. I like to keep it tight. I love it that we, it took us till 2020. Of all the years to have Doug Lamarie start doing like scripted, structured podcasts, it was going to take 2020, right? I got four pages of notes, man. I, I got categories. <laughs> I made my wife do it on the printer. Um, who owned you don't the know game? how to use a printer? Well, I, I could go do a whole thing with her printer at her house. We, it's like <laughs> the printer is like a, you know, it's like a wireless printer. So you're supposed to be able to find it on your internet and then send out. Nobody's the only computer in our house that can find our printer is my wife's printer. So everybody in our, my family, we have to email my wife and make her print out everything we ever want to print out. So I was like, honey, can you print out the retalkables <laughs> budget? Steven, who owned the game? Rex Miller owned the game. Eight touches. He had 140 yards and two touchdowns. And quite frankly, the two most important touchdowns of that game for Ohio State, uh, as they went to halftime trailing 17 to 14, and then he comes out in the third quarter. He scores basically to start the third quarter. Um, what was that? A, a, a 54-yard touchdown pass from Cordell Jones and then the spin move. I mean, the spin move is what the spin move is, but those are, those are two big plays regardless of what – yes, the B button and all that stuff was great, but those are two big plays in the game. But also to the point of what I said earlier, everybody was excited to see how explosive Braxton Miller would be as a wide receiver, and he completely lived up to that. Nathan, who, who owned the game? Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of people who are there pretty close in terms of their statistical contributions, their, their, their tangible contributions. But who owns this game in, like, lore? Who owns this game in, like, history? Who, who became um, the, the, the full measure of themselves as Ohio State players almost because of this game? It's Braxton Miller. So I also have thought about this. I am really – I'm going to enjoy doing these. People are going to hate me by the time we're done with all these because I am going to be even yeah, more – this, this will be the thing that – this will be it. This will be the thing that puts him over the edge. Yeah. More of a, of a downer. It was the worst thing that could have happened to Ohio state that Braxton Miller owned this game. And if you listen to the commentators, it is unbelievable the way that Kirk Fowler, Chris Fowler and Kirk Herbstreet are talking about Braxton Miller. And, and this is like, this is just a, a, a preview of what is to come kind of conversation the whole game. Um, Chris Fowler, it's going to be fun throughout the season to see his role evolve. Um, I mean, they just were all in. This was the best Braxton Miller ever was this whole year. Yeah. He, he gained 23% of his yards from scrimmage in a 13 game season in this game. He had 140 yards from scrimmage. He had 600 the whole year. He was something in this game that he never was the rest of the year. And they kept trying to recapture this when actually a lot of what happened in this game and the way he owned it was terrible Virginia Tech coverage 
and one memorable move. It was not every down effectiveness. I will never forget the way that they tried to wildcat snap to this guy. This guy, wildcat snapping to Braxton Miller was such a miserable failure the whole year. He got outside one time on the spin move. The rest of the time, he didn't know what to do because all his effectiveness when he took quarterback snaps was the idea that he was a quarterback and then he could run when he's only a runner. And by the way, it started in this game and it lasted the whole year. When will he throw? When will he throw? Never threw it. Never threw a pass. This was fool's gold. He owned the game and he didn't own anything else. And it is mind boggling, but also like the, the route, the route that he ran on, well, there was a blown coverage, but there's another route. They had, they had a slowed down route when he beat somebody and his route was like, I mean, it looks like the route that Drake runs in that little video that didn't Drake have a commercial. He's running a route and his route is like, he has like one wiggle and then he goes and everybody's like, the, music, good. Video, the, the music video. Yeah. Yeah. It, people were making fun of Drake's routes, right? That's what Braxton yeah. Miller's routes look like. I'm not saying it's not Braxton's fault. He had never played receiver before. This was fool's gold. It was exciting in the moment, and you couldn't help but caught up in it, get caught up in it. But Nathan, when you if watch that you watch Braxton Miller do this, what would you have then guessed Braxton Miller did for the rest of the season, given that he had 140 yards from scrimmage and three gigantic plays in this game? Well, but again, it was it was the gigantic plays, right? It was that there there were a couple of just game breaker things, and you don't assume that those are going to replicate every week. So I don't know that I necessarily looked at this and thought, oh, he's going to break off one of those spin moves every week. He's going to go fifty yards to the house multiple times every week. That, that seemed a little far fetched. The same way I didn't expect Ezekiel Elliott to break off eighty yard touchdown runs every week. You know, well, that's but incorrect. I, I, you should expect that. Ezekiel Elliott actually didn't. did do that more than once in his life, though. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but not every week. And I'm just saying, like, Ezekiel I, I, so, Elliott had done it in the playoff semifinal the year before, and run 85 yards through the heart of the South. Fine, but okay, fair, fair enough. But I'm just saying that I didn't necessarily expect uh, Braxton Miller to go contend for the Heisman after this game. But I, I am surprised to hear that it ended up being like such a huge portion of his his season output just just in, in this one game. But but you, it sounds like you're you're also voting that he owned this game. Oh, he clearly so he, he won this game. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so I, I agree with you, Doug, 100%. One, because he never threw the ball. And it was almost a perfect opportunity for one game for him to throw the ball just because anytime you put him in there as a Wildcat th- quarterback, after three or four games, people are just going to think, oh, yeah, he's definitely running. But if you add a wrinkle in there where he does throw the ball because, you know, he did play quarterback for three years, I mean, it would have opened up so much. But, no, I don't agree with that. I, I do expect him to have – a Braxton Miller moment at least once a game because he's Braxton Miller. And for three years, he showed us Braxton Miller moments. So asking once a game at some random point for a Braxton Miller moment, whether it's as a wide receiver or as a wildcat quarterback, or they even handed the ball off to him a couple of times. I'm yes. I expect there to be a Braxton Miller moment sometime in the game. And he had another chance to have another touchdown, another touchdown catch in the game. And he just couldn't create separation whatsoever, but also, Cardell Jones threw a very bad pass. He threw a lot of weird bad passes in that game. But, yes, I, I was expecting at least one Braxton Miller moment in every single game because he's Braxton Miller. And for three years he showed us he can have those type of moments. 
But he showed it to us as a quarterback. And it's a very different yeah. thing to when you are the best athlete at quarterback and then you get out the receiver. And there's lots of good athletes at receiver. And so it just yeah. was, it's, it's something that never came to be. It's funny. Um, in, uh, Curtis Samuel then dropped the spin move, I guess, the next year. And I wrote a thing about, and then, and then Braxton Miller, after he graduated, his family sold spin move t-shirts on the internet. And they had a little drawing. And I wrote a thing that actually I think um, Curtis Samuel's spin move, like against Bowling Green, that was like in traffic and actually got him away from a tackle was as good or maybe even better than Braxton Miller's spin move. Because Braxton Miller's spin move was in the open field. It was at high speed. He didn't really break a tackle. I think he could have accomplished the same thing by planting his foot and, and cutting. I mean, you see guys cut away from players all the time. I actually think the spin move is overrated. Which again, I mean, I, I'm, people are going to hate me by the end of this podcast. But I wrote a thing that basically was like, "Is the spin move overrated?" And like Braxton Miller's dad, like contacted me. Braxton Miller hates me because I think the spin <laughs> the spin move is overrated. It was two so, people. He, he got two people with it. But he wasn't he wasn't in their grasp or anything. I mean, guys do spin moves all the time. I get it. I'm not saying I could do it. I'm saying other players could do it. I could show you the Curtis Samuel spin move in traffic. That got oh, away yeah. from people, and then he gets tackled later. But I, I, I mean, I'm just saying. I mean, like Justin Fields had one last season too. So yes, I'm. It, yes, you're right. I mean, they made T-shirts. It's not. It's not the greatest move in the history of football. It's not. I mean, it was a very good move. I could not do it. Lots of other good players, I think, could do it, and there became this myth around it. Um, and it stands out because that kind it, it didn't happen after this. It didn't happen anymore. Now, he did have a great diving catch. His first catch of the game was a great diving catch, like 24 yards on a low throw from Cardale. So he showed some hands on that. But, um, yeah, I just – the way he owned this, and we'll get into – I mean, there's so much talent on the offense. I think it helped lead Ohio State, at least for a while in this season, to be like, man, we've got to get this guy involved, and it never paid off close to the way it paid off in this game um, does anybody else hate the wildcat i kind of hate the wildcat i feel like it's either it's either a situation where i mean the whole thing started with like you know kind of once in a generation running backs kind of making that famous and then a lot of other teams have tried to adapt it with kind of ordinary running backs it never really seems to work out when i watch it in a consistent basis and then you get a situation like this where you'd have a, a an athlete who would be very multifaceted in that and they don't really use him to the full extent well i mean and one of the things when we get into a world where quarterbacks can run now i mean it started off when you had yeah, okay. a, a quarterback right, who couldn't run i mean cardale jones ran the wildcat like 10 times in this game it's just qb power it's what urban meyer does all the time tim tebow ran the wildcat 25 times a game you know i mean and that's the thing with like if you when you and it's a misnomer by dumb sports writers when you have a former quarterback taking the snap and he might throw that's not the wildcat that's football like that's okay what are you gonna do well we're gonna do here just you guys listen this is the game plan don't tell anybody we'll tell you right we're gonna get a guy back there in the shotgun who can run or throw and we're gonna snap it to him and then he's gonna run what do you think it's like oh you mean a play you mean a play (laughs) yeah Yeah, every single play that happens in college football now so, I mean, it's like, oh, they could, like Ohio State could run the Wildcat with Trey Sermon. It's like, or they could just snap it to Justin Fields, who is a better runner than Trey Sermon. So, yeah, I agree. Darren McFadden, that was the right. good Wildcat. That's like right. a Heisman Trophy level running back at a place where the quarterback couldn't run. Everything else is just silly. 
Which is why the wildcat is going to be extinct in the next three years because every quarterback needs to be able to run. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, yeah, right. Let's run the wildcat with uh, Lamar Jackson. You mean be the MVP? Is that, the, is that what you want to call it? What do you call this play? We call this play be the MVP. We're going to get him a shotgun. He might run. He might throw. You don't know what it's going to do. But if he runs, it's the Wildcat. Oh, great. Thanks for, thanks for explaining football. Okay. So, in conclusion, spin move is overrated. You can throw this podcast in the river. Uh, category number two is the JT Barrett underappreciated player of the game. Nathan, who's your JT Barrett underappreciated player of the game? And to be clear... JT Barrett is eligible for this award. So I, I picked a, I didn't actually pick a single player. I picked a position group and that was the linebackers. They were someone that I um, was just taking notice of early in this game. And it, this was a game that struck me where we're going to talk a little bit about championship aspirations and, and what that means later on, I think on this list. And this, I don't know if this is like a, a take, but like, I feel like linebacker play, like you can't, you don't have to be great. You don't have to have great linebackers to win a championship, but you can't be terrible. And this group, I thought, you know, there are obviously names that I knew, even not covering Ohio State, but I've seen those guys go on and have NFL careers. And they made their impact in college too. So it, it didn't it, – it, it struck me that these guys were – it wasn't just that they were solid. They were probably better than that and that it was a, a group that they could you could have as a foundational piece of a defense and how important that was. I know that's maybe a boring answer, but that they were the guys who struck me that, like, nobody's talking about them in this game. You're not – you've got all these, you know, future NFL draft picks uh, in the secondary. You're talking about who isn't there on the defensive line as much as who is there for a game like this, and the linebackers are just sort of there doing their job. I, I will say – Raquan McMillan, middle linebacker, future second round pick. Darren Lee, outside linebacker, first round pick. Joshua Perry, leading tackler on the team, outside linebacker, third round pick. So, but I mean, and again, but, but that's not, a, yeah. But it just, I just don't well, feel like they're talked about as a group no, the same way. No, because I mean, you go through, I mean, the draft, I didn't add them up. Maybe I should have. I mean, the draft picks on this team blow your mind. I mean, it's yeah. just like it's like an NFL game. So, yeah, I thought there were moments. Um, I thought they were undisciplined at times. I thought Darren Lee got caught looking in the backfield a couple of times because Darren Lee, I think, is like a big play kind of guy. I thought Raekwon made some stops where it was like, that's a middle linebacker. Like, mm -hmm. that's a, like for anybody who is like not super into the tough Borland era of middle linebacking at Ohio State, like you watch Raekwon McMillan, it's like, that's it. Steven, who was your JT Barrett underappreciated player of the game? Um, I don't know how. <clears throat> A top 10 draft pick can be underappreciated, but Ezekiel Elliott was un underappreciated in this game. One, only, one, because he only got the ball 11 times. He ran for 122 yards and a touchdown, especially when you look at what he did the next week against Hawaii where he only averaged 3.7 yards per carry. I mean, he was really good in this game. But also, he's a really good blocking running back. And I, you knew it a little bit, but just going back and rewatching this game, you really noticed it. Going back to the, the spin-move play, the thing that really sprung Rack Similar open was I think there was a linebacker coming down and Ezekiel Elliott just took him out. And that was a guy who would have cut off that cut off the edge that Brock Similar was running towards. And Ezekiel Elliott just flat out laid him out. He did that a couple times in this game. So I don't he wasn't obviously he's not underappreciated from fans. Everybody knows what he did, but for a guy who did what he did the last three games of the the previous season to only get the ball eleven times in an offense. And I know that became like a, a problem throughout the season, especially the Michigan State game where he came out and said, I feel like we don't run the ball enough. Well, that's not the exact thing he said, but that's basically the vibe he was giving off. But Ezekiel Elliott didn't get the ball nearly as much as he should have. Cardell Jones should not have more rushing attempts than Ezekiel Elliott. That just shouldn't be the case. 
I think that basically was what he said after the Michigan State game. There's no vibe about it. He was mad. You're right, yeah. Um, I'm going to do – I got to double-check this guy's name for my underappreciated game. Let me double-check because I can't – it's uh, – that, that means he's especially – he's even underappreciated uh, on this podcast. In a world where you're trying to give him some love, he still didn't get enough. Love. I can't remember. I couldn't bother to find his name. Does this – wait, oh, wait, hold on a second. I think I have it. It's M- Mitchell Tomas. Mike – Michael Thomas. Michael Thomas. Oh, yeah. That's, that's a good answer. Worse. That's a good answer. Um, so, I, 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 yeah. So, I said, let's talk about it as something comes up. I, watching this game, it made me feel like the offense was designed by a circus master. And it was like, could we have the quarterback drop back and throw a pass? Or could we have the quarterback just hand the ball – it's literally – you literally have the best running back and the best receiver in the NFL right now. And it was like, let me, let me give you an idea for an offense. How about you hand it to the running back and throw it to the receiver? Michael Thomas had two catches for 46 yards on the list of guys who didn't get the ball enough. He did have a couple plays late where he drew some pass interference penalties. They did try to get it to him. And he had a play where he murdered, murdered Kendall Fuller. He murdered him a stop-and-go route for the touchdown in the fourth quarter that became, when Michael Thomas got drafted, that is a highlight that you saw a gazillion times. Michael Thomas, who as a, is as a precise a route runner in college and in the NFL, as you will ever see, he's not that fast. He's big. He's not gigantic. He has great hands, and he runs great routes, and that's why he's the best receiver in the NFL. He caught two passes in this game. He caught one early. They did nothing with him in the middle three quarters, and he caught – Go! I mean, you guys know the stop-and-go route I'm talking about. The little – and Kendall Fuller, his, he exploded into a 1,000 pieces, and Michael Thomas was open five, by five yards. He, they caught him with a slant, an easy, easy – quick slant early. I think it might've been the first series and that late, those were his two catches. I swear to God, if their whole offense had been 25 carries a game for Ezekiel Elliott and 10 catches a game for Michael Thomas, they would have won every game by 30 points. And instead they are running quarterback power with Cardale Jones and Ezekiel Elliott as a lead blocker. They have Braxton Miller and Curtis Samuel coming in motion for little jet sweep passes. They're running they're, they ran a fourth down play that actually worked. It was like a swing pass to Ezekiel Elliott. It's like, can we hand the guy the ball and throw to the guy that they didn't use Michael Thomas more? I almost threw my computer off a roof. Steve, uh, Nathan, I know like that part of what we're talking about when now we, and the, here's the thing, we knew it then. It's not like people didn't know that Michael Thomas and Ezekiel Elliott were good. We did know it then and they still didn't use them. Knowing now what they are, when you watch the way they were used in, the, in this game, what did you think? Well, I mean, especially I agreed with Steven as far as like Elliot, you're uh, watching that first drive of the game. I'm like, I'm keeping track and I'm like, and then finally they get to it. It's like, well, there's Ezekiel Elliott's first touch and it's on a little swing pass. It's like the 10th snap of the game. I'm like, what? Because <laughs> I hadn't even really, it hadn't like dawned on me, but then you, you realize it. And it's like, uh, you go back someday or you can even do it now. You can look at the list of guys who were on offense for Ohio State in this game. And where would you rank Cardell Jones just in terms of his like, his presence, his skill. Like he's like, you know, he's definitely behind those two guys and you're Knife. starting to put, yeah. I mean, you're starting to put, when you start mixing in offensive linemen, you, you really get interesting. So yeah, I, I, I will say though, I think he was both underappreciated by Ohio state in the way they used him, but also underappreciated. And, and I, if you hadn't pointed out, I was going to just on his impact on the game, he only had a couple catches, but those PIs did lead to the touchdown that I think was the one that made it 42, 17, that kind of 
put this away. Or it was one of the third quarter touchdowns that he really set up with uh, drawing those PIs on the, the short half of the field. So it, those need to somehow be factored into what the receiver did that day. They just don't show up on the stat line. So, And I will say the, the other thing about Steven's point about Ezekiel Elliott and his blocking, it's all we talked about. I mean, people, the coaches, the coaches couldn't do anything but talk about Ezekiel Elliott's blocking for two years. So it's like, that is a, well, that is a fact, but it is a, I could, I got so tired of talking about it. It's like, I get it. He's a great blocker. Can you hand him the ball? So, yeah. Two things. One, to the point of Michael Thomas, I often forgot he was on this team while watching this game because they just weren't using him until those pass interference calls started happening. Two, that was a terrible throw. It it almost ruined Um, what was a, on the, oh, the touchdown, touchdown pass, yes. He's waiting there for it. He has to almost come. It, it almost The great route almost gets ruined because the throw is just so bad. Well, he was open by eight yards initially, and then by the time the ball got there, he was only open by three yards. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so, anyway, yeah. It's like, which future NFL Hall of Famer was <laughs> underappreciated in this game by the Ohio State Buckeyes? Uh, third one, we go a little quicker on that. The slob moment of the game. This was the era when the offensive lineman for Ohio State, as our listeners know, really leaned into the slob nickname. Uh, Taylor Decker and those guys love to talk about this. Steven, was there a moment where an offensive lineman really stood out to you? I don't think there was a specific moment um, just because there was a lot of read option stuff and Cardell holding onto the ball. But I will – no sacks in 19, pass, in 19 pass attempts, no sacks, which is respectable, and two guys with 100 yards rushing. Cardell with 99, but for the sake of his – two guys with 100 yards rushing and no sacks. So quality day for the offensive line, both in the running run game and the pass protection. Nathan, do you have a big old slob? I went with uh, Pat Elfline clearing out two guys on the 80-yard touchdown run by Zeke Elliott, although I don't know if he needed a hole that big. I think once he got up there, it was, it was probably toast, but that was one where he had plenty of room to set up that play that was uh, pretty pivotal at the time. It looked, I mean, when it's 14 to nothing there, you think this is going to be kind of like the, uh, the, the simulation that we did the other night, you know, you see a team that's kind of piling it up early. You think it's going to be a cakewalk. I think I had the 2015 coaching staff play, making play calls for me. And he you had did. There. You did. It was the 2014 <laughs> yeah, game. Literally, literally what it was. Let's, uh, let's put a moratorium on talking about your fake game. Um, <laughs> I also had the Elfline thing. I thought it was interesting. Kirk Herbstreet does not know what Pat Elfline's name is. He called him Elfine twice. Yeah. He called it on that play, and then later. And I was like, oh, well, maybe it's because Pat Alfine is a first-game starter. It's like, no, he started all of 2014, and he's back as a returning starter on the defending national champions. And Kirk Herbstreet didn't know he had the second L in his name. He called him Alfine. I thought it was funny. Um, but that's a great offensive line. Taylor Decker, first-round pick. Billy Price, first-round pick. Pat Alfine, fourth-round pick. I mean, they're all – and then Jacoby Boren. Jacoby Boren got rolled a couple times in that game. Um, smaller center. And then Chase Ferris. And, uh, you know, just to educate you guys a little bit, that, that helped. That was like the continuing – they had a stretch there. Well, maybe it was only two years in a row. They just like a fifth-year senior came up out of nowhere and like won the starting right tackle job, which is kind of like what Brandon Bowen did last mm. year. But Daryl Baldwin had done it in 2014. And then Chase De- Ferris, as a fifth-year senior, first-year starter, did it in 2015. The Malik Hooker, where did he come from award? This is another one. Um, the slob moment was Texters. The JT Barrett underappreciated moment. That was a texter suggestion. The where did he come from award named for Malik Hooker. This is both named for the idea of Malik Hooker's ability to like come from off the screen and make an interception and be like, where did he come from? And also the fact that Malik Hooker went from a non-starter to a starter to an All-American to a first-round pick in the course of a year. So, Nathan, who was the guy who came out of nowhere for you in this game? 
Well, th this answer applies to some other things. So I don't know if you guys might have better answers for this right now. And we can come back to this, but obviously um, Sam Hubbard had to step up and be something in this game that he didn't have to be before. So um, that's, I think, an obvious answer, but maybe a more obvious answer for something we want to talk about later. For the category that actually includes that description in the name of the category? Right. <laughs> All right. But, uh, that's, that's the one that jumped out to me, just from someone who, with my limited knowledge of this roster going into the game, that was the one that jumped out to me. That was his first game, literally. Right. His first actual snaps on the defense. Right. That's what he did. So, you know, he fits it perfectly. He went from a non-starter to not even getting – Except, except he, he fits the other thing better. But, yeah, okay, but those are good answers. The one that has the – the description that has the next man up description in the name of the thing because he had to be the next man up because their best yeah. player didn't play. Yeah, that's the one. So, we'll save it for that. The two jumped out to me. One is Jack Willoughby which is there was this weird run out of Ohio State being like, oh, shoot, we don't have a kicker. Jack Willoughby was like a walk-on transfer from Duke, and it's like, hey, do you want to come kick for the defending national champions? And he missed a field goal in this game. It's like, go hug Blake Hawbeal today. Go hug if you're an Ohio State fan. They had this odd – I can't even remember the other guy that they had for one year. They had this odd stretch, and part of it's because Sean Nuremberger was hurt for a while and was inconsistent. The idea to me that, hey – we're on the road against a pretty decent team to defend our national championship. And who just missed a 41 yard field goal Oh, the walk on transfer from Duke. I always drives me crazy when like a great team can't find a better kicker than that. So no offense to Jack Willoughby, but I was always shocked by that, that that was a solution for them that year. And then also the guy who came from out of nowhere, that Virginia tech fullback who got loose on the 50 yard wheel route because this <laughs> whole defense had no discipline. There were moments, multiple moments in this game where this defense filled with future NFL guys was like, let's go chase the ball. And it's like, could someone cover somebody and not have your eyes in the backfield? We've seen Ohio, get, Ohio State over the years, smart teams use their aggression against them. They did this. They leaked the fullback out. I think his name was something Rogers, and he caught a 51-yard touchdown pass that never should have happened. So he didn't the, come out of nowhere on that. The wheel route takes my breath away almost every time somebody pulls it off. I love it. You, I, I don't know if we've talked about my in-depth strategy of football, but you really only need three plays. Uh, wheel route, coffin corner punt, and uh, direct snap to the kicker to run in the two-point conversion. That's the only three plays you need. I don't know why they spend all this time on playbooks and offensive coordinators and stuff. Three plays. And, uh, but the wheel route, I love it. And I, I'm watching that play, and I'm thinking – uh, the, the, the name that came to me there was Cade Stover. That, I, 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 I will mark it down. This isn't a mark it down Monday. Mark it down that Cade Stover scores a touchdown very similar to that before the end of his Ohio State career. Ohio State more often gets burned on that than executes it. There's a very famous wheel route that they got smoked on at USC in 2008. It was sort of like the beginning. I think it was Stanley Havili. They got absolutely destroyed on um, so we, but again, that's the best thing against a team like Ohio State. They have so many good aggressive defenders. Um, all right, quick break. We'll be back with the Jim Tressel punt or not to punt moment of the game. You're listening to Ohio State Virginia Tech 2015 on Buckeye Retalkables. All right, back with another category suggested by a texter: the Jim Tressel punt or not to punt moment of the game. This is sort of like a coaching decision. Were you too aggressive? Were you too cautious? It doesn't have to be about a punt, but it's sort of like a moment maybe if there is one. Yeah, you know, hopefully, again, this becomes a smash hit and we do Buckeye Retalkables forever. Maybe not every category will fit every game. Steven, did one pop for you on this? 
No, not one pop. The only place it would have popped was right after halftime, just because they were losing. They probably needed to keep momentum and keep the play alive, but ended up with big play. So not one popped where it was at a situation where the game was on the line. So they probably need to keep this drive alive and, you know, go for it on fourth down. Nathan, did you have one? There were a couple of things. The second snap of this game where there was a play where Miller comes in the game and they run some kind of motion and it just kind of fizzles into a puddle of nothing. And they just, and I was like, that almost looked like something that could have developed be, or happened that way because of the quarterback uncertainty that had been playing out. Although, as you say, that they'd, you know, he'd been taking the first team reps and stuff. It just looked like a, a play that was much better in concept than anything they'd been able to actually execute. It was just, it, was, it looked odd to me. And uh, obviously they, at that juncture of the game, though, they were able to make up for it. But then also just the, the, Using Ezekiel Elliott as a punt returner, I know that they were forced into it by the suspensions that they had that game, but I thought that experiment did not work. Failed miserably. Well, I'm going to ask you a question about that when we get to the next category. I thought there was a moment that came up. They had on the first drive, they went for it on fourth and five. Ohio State did from their own 34. They'd had a third and 21 and Cardale ran for 16 on third down. And then Urban just automatic went for it. And for Ohio State fans who covered the whole Urban Meyer era, Urban did that all the time. That is not what every coach does. And that's the play that someone had referenced earlier. They threw a little swing pass to Ezekiel Elliott and he got the first down. And they wind up going in and scoring a touchdown on the next play. They threw a touchdown pass to Curtis Samuel. So it was, I mean, fourth and five from the 34 is kind of in no man's land, right? I mean, you're not going to kick a 51-yard field goal with a walk-on transfer from Duke. You're not going to punt there. So it's not like the gutsiest call in the world. But Urban, when he was really rolling, was just on like auto go for it sometimes. I mean, it wasn't like nobody even looked to the side. Like, there was no decision. It's like we're going. And you just get up and you go with all this talent. So that got their first – that led to their first touchdown directly. And there are some ding-dong coaches out there who might have, might have punted there. I don't know because, you know, coaches are idiots. Um, the next category is the Bill Davis, Tim Beck, questionable coaching moment. So what you both described, Nathan, what you described, I thought sounded more like questionable coaching moments than a decision. So yeah. now I'm curious, what is your questionable coaching moment? So what did you have for this? Um, just that, that Elliot seemed like an afterthought in so many ways and that I would have, you know, used him more. I, I guess you could break, take this back to the punt return thing. Like, why is, why aren't you putting the ball in his hands behind the line of scrimmage? Um, and, and, and why is he back there as a punt returner anyway? He just doesn't seem like maybe the, the, the athlete that I would pick to do that on this team either. Well, he was, the reason he was back there as punt returners because their first two punt returners were suspended. So, right. But that was, but they could have, they had him back there in the KJ Hill just catch it mode. And it's like, maybe don't have your Heisman trophy. Not as easy as it looks either. And also, he couldn't catch it. Right. He fumbled one, and which I'm going to mention later. But yeah. So, Jalen Marshall and Dontre Wilson, two of the players who were suspended for this game. So, they kind of didn't have anybody else. But again, it's a little bit of a weird thing. So, I agree. Having him back there, certainly questionable in my mind. That, that, I mean, uh, but did they have nobody else? Like, why isn't someone like Braxton Miller? Are you kidding? Samuel. Option there. Curtis Samuel. I mean, they Curtis have Samuel or like they got a bunch of people. It's Ohio State. No, that's I mean, that's a that's a year long discussion. They constantly they they have 20 punt returners on every team. It's like, hey, we got any fast guys? We got any fast. It's like and they just half the time they don't do it. But yeah, I thought it was weird. I thought it was weird, especially since he was bad at it. Because if they talked about in the game a million times, Virginia Tech's punter was left footed. And apparently the spin of a left-footed punt compared against the way the earth spins on its axis makes it impossible to catch apparently because 
like the best player in college football could catch it and it cost him. So I do agree. That was a questionable thing. I'm not sure. I mean, Curtis Samuel is young, was a second year guy at that point would have probably made more sense than Ezekiel Elliott. But again, Jalen Marshall's their punt returner, but he was suspended and Don right. Trey Wilson's their second punt returner. Yeah. He was suspended too. Steven, what do you got for the, in honor of uh, Tim Beck and Bill Davis? Um, I did not like almost 60% of the past plays they ran. And some of that is, I just felt like they put Cardell in these weird positions where, when he threw the ball, at times I was thinking, oh, this is going to be an interception. The worst possible thing is going to happen here. And one that he did have an interception in the game, obviously. But the one that points out to me is he had a 29-yard uh, throw to Johnny Dixon at the time where he rolls out and kind of just flips it over the top as a jump pass. And the whole time it's going on, because I didn't remember that Johnny Dixon had this pass at this, at this catch at this point, I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is where the pick is. This is where the pick is because everything about it just seems like this is just not going to work. Because it wasn't a wrinkle in, the, in a goal line situation. It was just Cardell kind of being reckless. They love to roll him out. Again, if you could count, I didn't count specifically, how many times did he just drop back and stand in the pocket and throw? He was always on the move behind, again, a good offensive line. It's not like you were so afraid of the pass rush. And he's 6'5". Th- he doesn't need to roll out. I know. I don't know what they're doing. I mean, uh, the, the, all the fears of the play calling, I think, began to be exhibited here in the way they use Cardale. And by the time later in the year he lost his job, um, I felt, and I wrote it at the time, it felt like they never designed an offense around Cardale Jones to do, give him an opportunity to do what he did best. And, and coming off this game, because it got sideways pretty quick after this, because it didn't go great against Hawaii on the short week. It didn't go great against Northern Illinois. Then Cardale gets yanked, and I'm going to get into that in a minute. But this, I mean, it wasn't awful in the end, right? I mean, he almost ran for 100. He threw for whatever he threw for. I was reading what I wrote after the game. You know, it wasn't like, it was hard to walk away from this and be like, well, they suck. They're the defending national champions. They only won by 20, whatever. They stink. It's good. But you could see the seeds of sort of dysfunction of them not exactly knowing what to do. And again, in retrospect, I think, and one of the texters mentioned this, knowing now what we know about all the talent and how the season went, there were a lot of the seeds of that, I think, visible in this game. If you guys watch The Simpsons, they were early on in this game. It reminded me of the episode where Nelson Muntz, the bully, joins the peewee football team because it's like this kid that's like, probably supposed to be a sophomore in high school going back to play pop Warner and he's just crushing people. Um, but it, it, it looked like a bull in a China shop at times with Cardell Jones, both in that he could go in and just wreck havoc, but then also that sometimes it was like really awkward and kind of fragile. And you're kind of watching it like, what, what's going on here with this? And um, I, I was struck by the same thing as Steven. Like I, and it, it gave me some perspective on what Ohio state really actually has right now with Justin Fields, where you've got a guy with, I know he's not as physically imposing as, as as Jones is in terms of size, but he's he's big enough as it is, and he gets to be kind of a prototypical pocket passer, and then you have this explosiveness out of that. Um, that seems like a, a much more potent combination than the and and what you could ultimately do something really special with than an athlete like Jones. I think Ohio State was still living in the world of um, of JT Barrett that, in that world because you when JT Barrett came in, he immediately has a forty one yard run. And it's, it, it was very clear that this was an offense that was better suited for JT Barrett. Even, what, even if Cardell Jones beat him out. That's what it felt like the whole year. They just put the car, they put Cardell Jones in the JT Barrett offense. Yeah. And they were like, well, we picked this quarterback, but we picked the other quarterback's offense. And it was like, 
why didn't you combine the two that fit together? I mean, you're watching again, Michael Thomas is on the field, Ezekiel Elliott's on the field, and they're running like an option with Cardale Jones and Curtis Samuel. And it's like, what are you doing? And, and some of that, Nathan, what you're talking about, that bull in a china shop kind of thing, you know, Cardale Jones bowled in a china shop, Landon Collins into the Atlantic Ocean in the semifinal against Alabama. But yeah. in that moment, it was like, well, there was no choice other than to put Cardale Jones in a JT Barrett offense. And it looked awkward, but it surprisingly worked. And almost the awkwardness of it, I think, made it harder for Alabama to defend. And we saw that in the three-game Cardale Jones run. And then you had a whole offseason, and you came out on the field for Virginia Tech, and it was like, oh, it's the same sort of weird, awkward pairing of quarterback and system. Didn't you plan for Cardale to play? It was almost like JT was going to be the quarterback, and they build an offense, and then, like, right before the game, they're like, no, 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 Cardale. And it was like, okay, well, we're not ready for this, but do it anyway. So that is my questionable coaching decision. I think it's the worst decision of Urban Meyer's career. And I wrote this beforehand. I said the only decision he could make that would be wrong in picking quarterbacks would be to not pick one. And so he did pick one, but he gave up on Cardale so quick. His halftime interview of this game, oh, he yeah. said, we might put JT in in the second yeah. half. I was constantly. Well, said, what was it like? But we might get the other guy ready too. I think is what he said. I I wrote a lot about Cardale. Aren't you worried about Cardale looking over his shoulder? And everyone was like, Ah, guys, don't do that. I guarantee Cardale did it the whole time he was in the whole nope. year. Urban blew it. Tim Beck was a first year quarterbacks coach. He felt he he talked like he was detached from the process. It's his room. It wasn't his decision. And so I thought this, I think it's the number one thing that threw this season off that if they would have, if they would have picked Cardale and designed an offense to fit Cardale and been like, you are the quarterback, like until we lose, right? I mean, until it's really catastrophic or you just go with JT in the traditional urban offense, I think, and, and JT's the guy, but they tried to split the difference and they got the worst of both worlds and it started in this game and that you are, I mean, it's unbelievable to me. I think Urban, for all his psychological maneuvering and the way he, he gets players to be their best and he pushes them and he motivates them, I think he always thought that like competition at quarterback here will only motivate guys. I think it brought out the worst of both of them. And we all wrote a lot about their friends. It's fine. They're not fighting. They weren't fighting, but neither of them played their best. And I think it's because they always thought, well, I don't know, maybe we'll get yanked. And in Cardale, especially, I just think Urban blew it. And I, and I don't, I still don't understand why. And I, and I talked to somebody around the program when the decision was made. And I said, what did you, what did you think of the decision? And they said they were shocked. They could not believe that Cardale was the choice, that there, that there was just an assumption that, JT having been the starter, the way he fit the offense would be the guy. And I think Urban got a little bit of a wild hair. There's a great, you know, conspiracy theory, I think still to this day of did he promise Cardale something at Glenville High School when Cardale was announcing his decision, whether he was going to go pro or not. A lot of us thought Cardale was going to go pro and he came back. Was he somehow promised the job? I don't know. No one's ever confirmed that. But um, I think the worst part of the decision was that they didn't match up the offense to the guy they picked. It's not like they couldn't have done that. I mean, 
Michael Thomas would have been his number one option at wide receiver. So, and then we did very easily it. done it. And we saw it like when they went with Dwayne Haskins, right? They picked Dwayne yeah. Haskins over Joe Burrow. They didn't play Dwayne Haskins in the Joe Burrow, JT Barrett offense. You know, they, they adjusted and it drove Urban crazy. It wasn't what he did. But I do think Ryan Day was a, was a powerful enough offensive coordinator that Urban trusted that Ryan Day like wouldn't let them run a Joe Burrow, JT Barrett offense with Dwayne Haskins. Like we got to change. And Tim Beck in year one, Ryan Day wasn't in year one in 2018. So that's all different. He was in year two. But Tim Beck in year one and Ed Warner in year one weren't able to do that. And the result was a mess. I was going to ask you, like, what, looking back on it now, what do you think ultimately was the reason that they picked Jones? And did it have anything to do with either the way the national championship run ended or the, the professional aspirations? Like, how much influence do you think those had over whatever battle was actually going on in the preseason? Everybody after the fact said that JT wasn't himself in preseason, that he was still favoring the injury a little bit and didn't play that well. But you know who JT Barrett is, and I think you know that JT Barrett's going to show up when the lights are on. So I think that's an excuse. It's like, well, JT didn't play. It's like, well, you know what JT can do. He came in as a redshirt freshman last year when Braxton got hurt and led you guys through a regular season that got you in the playoff until he sacrificed his leg in the Michigan game. It doesn't matter what JT Barrett looks like in the preseason. I, I, I do think, I don't know. I think Urban got caught up in some kind of weird loyalty thing. But also, I mean, that, that thing is like, well, I thought the deal was guys don't lose their starting job when they get hurt. So even yeah. like, it's like, well, he was a starter at the end of last year. It's like, yeah, because the other guy got hurt. And Cardale yeah, the- wouldn't have gone nuts. I, I, like, I, I, just, I just think it was, I don't know. I think Urban got in his own head a little bit. I think the loyalty thing would have potentially played in, in Barrett's favor just as much as, as Jones. Um, but I also, I, I, I will say devil's advocate. I think it's tough. If you think the guy isn't fully back, if you think that it's, especially if you think it's rattling him mentally for whatever reason, if, even if he's supposed to be physically back and then things don't go right and you lose. And then people look and say like, you had this perfectly good guy, healthy standing here who was ready to go. I, I don't know. I suppose you can't really let that. You can't let the, 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 the second guessing before the first guess even happens affect your decision. But I, 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 I understand it wasn't just like a no-brainer. Well, the, other, the other thing is, and I think this was borne out, is JT Barrett's a regular season quarterback. JT Barrett wins the games he's supposed to win. Who gives you the better chance to beat Bama? Maybe Cardale with the arm and the big rumbling plays, right? But they didn't get to Bama. They, they looked like crap all year against the teams they were supposed to beat, and then they lost to Michigan State. JT was a starter by Michigan State, but he was effective and – affected and ineffective I think against Michigan State in part because of the wind and the weather in part because he hadn't been the starter the whole year so actually it might have been that the right answer was make JT the starter for the regular season again and tell him once he gets you the playoff be like oh yeah dude you're benched we're going to Cardale again but but like and it's like it's one of those things it didn't work so it was wrong because they didn't just lose to Michigan State the offense with all this talent looked out of sync the whole year so they made the wrong decision I mean like that's you can dispute how they got there, the results speak for themselves. We're not talking about the two-dime defending national champions, and they absolutely have the talent to do it. Kenny Guyton, next man up award. Another texter idea. Was there a guy that got hurt and needed replaced? Is there a guy filling in for a star who graduated or something? Is there, I don't know, a guy who's going to be the third pick in the draft who's suspended for this game who is replaced by a redshirt freshman? So now go ahead with the things that you guys yes. said before. 
Yeah, sorry, I already stepped on it, but it's obviously Sam Hubbard. And it's like to, to have someone who has to step in, not just for a starter as a redshirt freshman and play his first game, um, but you're maybe you, – I mean, you might be playing – you might be subbing in for the best football player in the game. It's, I mean, it's either Bosa or Elliott, right? I guess Michael Thomas now has to be in that conversation. But, I mean, at the time, it looked yeah, – certainly the best defensive player in the game, in that game, um, on that team, that's, that's a tall task in, in a, a high-profile game. Um, with, with everything that's at stake. And not only did I think he hold his own, I mean, he obviously had some big moments in this game. I thought he stepped up and, and made an impact. Yeah, he's an obvious one. I also want to throw Taekwon Lewis in there. Obviously, he was going to be a guy who played anyway, but, I mean, he stepped up in this game. You know, six tackles, two TFLs, and a sack and a half in that game in a situation where you lose a guy who's probably getting you a sack and a half to two sacks in that game anyway. So he pretty much stepped into the – Joey Bosa role for that game and Sam Hubbard became the Taekwon Lewis role for that game. So that's part of the reason why I put Sam Hubbard in the other category because I had Taekwon Lewis for this I, one. I think that makes a lot of sense because one guy replaces the position and one guy kind of replaced the production. Mm -hmm. So Hubbard, I think had a sack early and then he hit the quarterback late that led to an interception on a deep ball. So, I mean, yep. he did make an impact. Um, and again, Joey Bosa, Jalen Marshall, Dontrell Wilson, and Corey Smith were suspended. I remember that was announced at the Big, at Big Ten Media Days at July, that there was whatever had happened in the offseason, violation of team rules kind of stuff. That was, I mean, it's kind of a big deal, right? I mean, like, you know, Jalen Marshall's a starter. Dontrell Wilson matters, and Joey Bosa is Joey Bosa, and he didn't play that game, and, it, and you know, it, it did not kill them. Um, but, yeah, you could see. I mean, it's just it's fun to see some of these guys who, who are flashing some stuff um, early on. The John Cooper, if he'll bite, he'll bite as a pup category, which, again, is a great texture idea. The former Ohio State coach, that's the idea of if a guy's going to be a good player, he's going to flash it early. So doesn't have to be a freshman, but this category is more for, all right, this guy is not a star in this game necessarily, but we know he's going to go on and be a great player. But he showed something here. Um, there was one guy that I, that I thought, not a freshman, that really jumped out here, but, Stephen, who'd you have in this category? Jalen Holmes, second year in the program, top 100 recruit, six tackles and a forced fumble. I mean, pretty solid day for a guy who he, he wasn't always in the rotation in his second year, but he had some – because Joey Bosa's gone, everybody has to move up a step in the pecking order. He got an opportunity to play a little bit more, and he made the most of that opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I had Hubbard on the list, obviously just being a redshirt freshman, but then also Holmes stripping that ball out was something that I thought we needed to talk about. That was a, a pretty pivotal play in this game when it was still in the balance. Yeah, no, I thought that was a huge – I mean, that, that was the play before the spin move. Right? Mm -hmm. So Jalen Holmes wearing number 10, which is not what he, I don't think, ended up being later in his career. I mean, I was, I was watching that being like, who's number 10? And it's like, oh, it's Jalen Holmes. Um, strips a ball out, and then the first offensive snap, they almost get to the snap late coming out of commercial, and it's the, it's the Braxton spin move, which, which breaks the game open. Um, I also thought, I thought Curtis Samuel. Curtis Samuel caught the first touchdown of the game. Curtis Samuel that year um, had only like 400 yards from scrimmage. He had 289 receiving, 132 rushing, again on the list of guys who should have been used more. I think Curtis Samuel was a better football player that year than Braxton Miller was. But Braxton played ahead of him in the slot. I'm not saying that was a mistake. Braxton gave his body to this program. He saved Ohio State. He was a one-man offense in 2012 and 2013. You absolutely should have some loyalty to Braxton Miller. Curtis Samuel was better. And then Curtis Samuel the next year in 2016 is the whole offense. So here he is in 2015. He makes a really nice adjustment on a kind of an iffy ball from Cardale. 
gets away from the defender and makes a diving catch in the end zone for the first play of the game. And he did a little bit that year. He had done a tiny bit his first year in 14. Uh, but this year he, he had 17 rushing attempts and 22 catches. So only had 39 touches the whole year. And then the next year he has 175 touches. So you could see, I thought it was a flash of that's the Curtis Samuel to come, but that Jalen Holmes play was stupendous. I mean, it's just an absolutely game changing, stupendous play by, by Jalen Holmes. Tedkin Jr. speed moment of the game. This is another texter idea. You know, they got a lot of fast guys. So there's always a fast guy to talk about. Steven, who's your fast guy? So Paris Campbell was special teams guy that year. I'm pretty sure this is his freshman year. Um, he was on punt, 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 punt coverage, and I think it was maybe the second or third punt of the game where he got to the punt returner literally 0.2 seconds after he, the ball, guy caught the ball. And it's like the first – I, I mean, obviously, the Paris Campbell would go on to do greater things, but, I mean, you had that type of speed. We all knew it was there, but him be able to show it in, on a special teams play and kind of show, okay, this, when he finally works his way up the, road, up the, you know, the pecking order of things, this is what you're going to be able to get out of him. I mean, that was a pretty impressive play in one of the two tackles he had in the game. So – there were no, like, on offense speed moments, so I had to go searching for one, and I realized, oh, yeah, Paris Campbell is on this team. It's, it's well, funny. A lot of these guys were here a while. You don't well, really Paris, realize it until you. Paris is a five-year guy, so he's a redshirt freshman in 15. Yeah. Right? So it's his first action. It's the first game. Um, I also have Paris, but not because of special teams, because he beat the pants off a of Virginia Tech defender on a slant, was wide open. Cardale hit him in the hands, and he dropped it, which began the Paris Campbell – has no hands thing that lasted for like three years yeah. until he had a great year, his last year at Ohio state in 2018. But this was the beginning of that. And they had a drop later that looked like a catch initially. And then on review was a drop. So he was super fast. And by the time he gets to the combine at the end of his five-year career, he is as rare of a combination of size and speed, a guy who's over six feet tall, over 200 pounds, running as fast as he did at the combine. He's an unbelievably rare, gifted player, and he dropped the touchdown that was in his hands because the guy would have had no chance to catch him. But you can see a little flash of this again on the list of Michael Thomas is playing, Ezekiel Elliott is playing. Curtis Samuel is playing. Braxton Miller is playing. It's like, and here's, here's Paris Campbell, who's going to be a second-round pick someday, who is playing his first game um, and showed he was fast but didn't have the other stuff yet. Nathan, who'd you have? It, it was an easy answer. It may be low-hanging fruit, but I took Elliott just for what he did on that 80-yard touchdown run. And I know it was, as I mentioned, pointed out, the, the hole that was created definitely set that up. And some things have to happen right downfield, including some bad defense, usually for those things to happen. But um, that thing was over before it started. And then and he really showed off what he is as an NFL, future NFL talent in that moment. And it also kind of made me, um, I was thinking, I tried to apply some things I saw to this, like, how do I think about this coming hopefully still coming Ohio state football season. And like, you know, they're not going to have a guy in, in sermon who they can put out there like they did with um, JK Dobbins. And like they should have done maybe more often with, with Ezekiel and let him just like kind of grind away a game or, or get a lot of touches. But I'm, I'm curious if he's someone that they can get him out in space or free him up. Like we've talked about with the, the Davis Myers corridor or whatever you want to call it and maybe have some of those moments you're not going to get 80 yard touchdowns all the time but um, those kind of game-breaking moments I think are still going to be pretty crucial for this team we'll be back coming up next the style check meme it the Maurice Claret game-saving moment does this look like a championship Ohio State team and then our enjoyment meter that will be finishing up our Buckeye retalkables on Buckeye Talk all right back on Buckeye Talk 
Buckeye Retalkables, Doug LaMarie, Stephen Means, Nathan Baird. This is our style check because depending how old the game is, you can just reference things. Hey, does something look, you know, something looks interesting or weird. So we'll obviously start with the most stylish member of this podcast on style check. Nathan Baird, go ahead. I did not think I was about to get picked for that. Um, <laughs> Steven's mad. Steven's mad. Steven's mad. <laughs> and I am the one wearing a collared shirt and Steven's wearing, you know, a little more casual today. So maybe that's what, what tipped the scales. Um, it has nothing I, to do with style. <laughs> I've been a big fan. Um, I, well, uh, but let's, I mean, I'm not the one with the pink headphones. I mean, let's, let's give credit where credit's due. That's fair. The backwards baseball hat, the pink headphones, undefeated. Um, I'm a big fan of the, the Virginia Tech color scheme, which, it, but it's a thin line you got to walk because I'm not a big fan of the Clemson color scheme. And they're, it, it's like they're on each side of a fence almost, right? I kind of like the orange with the, the whatever that kind of purplish uh, violet, whatever that Virginia Tech has. But I don't really like it with what Clemson does. The orange and purple, I think that doesn't work as well. It, it looks just kind of a little sloppy to me and a little bit uh, – it clashes a little bit. But Virginia Tech to me is just sort of classic. It's sharp. Um, it's just I've always been a fan. And the helmets were like a little metallic or something too. Like the way they were like reflecting the light was yeah. – yeah. Clemson's a little more garish. Clemson is almost like cartoonish yes. orange and purple. Yes. Um, like, and, and this is, this is, yeah, a little this more, more adult. This looks more just like refined. It looks more mature. I don't know how to, to, to describe it better now, but it just looks more, it has a very, it's a very classic look to me. That's also part of that's also fits the category of the random Clemson sideswipe of the podcast. <laughs> Nathan's just like, ah, just rip Clemson. This feeds some meat to the audience. We didn't have that on the list, but it's kind of inevitable. I think we'll, we can probably <laughs> slide that in each week. So just don't actually put it down, but just, it'll see if it organically happens every week. All right, Steven, you're, what you got for the style? Yeah, I, first of all, I just think these two teams, their colors, especially with it being a night game, complemented each other very well. But I love when Ohio State wears those national championship jerseys. I just love them. I love those jerseys. I love when they go all white. I, I love when they go all white this early in the season with a night game when their helmets aren't filled with all the Buckeye stars yet. And so it's just a, a, a normal gray helmet. Um, and I, I just love – I love the all-white Ohio State look over the all-black and everything else they wear. I love this look on Ohio State, whether it's home or away, wherever they're playing at. So I um, called the spin move overrated, and it's why Braxton Miller's family doesn't like me. But I will say this was peak Braxton Miller male model. Oh, yeah. Moment. Like when Braxton – after the spin move, like Braxton, like his jerseys – not quite long enough. You can see the six pack under there. He's got like a smile on his face because he knows he just did something. And it's like, I, I really, I'm not trying to be negative about Braxton Miller. I, I was a, as big of a defender of Braxton Miller during 2014 as anybody. When, when there were a lot of Ohio State fans who were like, man, it's almost like it's good Braxton got hurt so we could put in this redshirt freshman who could lead us to the national championship. And I was always like, everything JT Barrett is doing, Braxton Miller could have done and would have done. He just got hurt because in 2012 and 2013, he was 24 and 0. Urban Meyer started 24 and 0. And the number one reason Urban Meyer started 24 and 0 as Ohio State's head coach is Braxton Miller. So now you finally have built up some talent around him with Ezekiel Elliott, Michael Thomas, and Devin Smith, and, and some of these other guys. And now Braxton's hurt, and everybody's like, oh, Braxton Miller, who's that guy? So that whole year, I was like reminding people of how good Braxton Miller was. I just never thought he was a receiver. I just never thought he was a receiver. And guess what? 
he wasn't a receiver. He got drafted way too high in the NFL. He just never had those skills because he tried to acquire them in one year. So I thought this was fool's gold, Braxton Miller as a receiver. This is peak. I mean, I Braxton Miller should be walking a catwalk in New York City right now. This is, I think this might've been pre-blue suit, but I mean, this guy's got it. I mean, like that guy is like, that is a college football player. That is the, I want to be that guy kind of thing. And so it's not just the spin move. It's the everything around it. So I might just rename this the Braxton Miller style check because that guy just dripped it, didn't he? I mean, my God. And I mean, it's not like this is the first time I've been effusive about how handsome Braxton Miller is. But just the way, the, the plays he would make and the way he would react to it. And he just, it's almost like the Jerry West silhouette in the NBA, right? That you... There's like a silhouette. You could take a picture of Braxton Miller at a certain angle and be like, that's Braxton Miller. And like, it represents Ohio state football, just like you could do it with Archie Griffin, or you could do it with Chris Spielman or different guys like that through the ages. This was, I thought this was just absolute peak Braxton-ness, you know, in addition to the move. Braxton Miller is the epitome of, if you look good, you play good. Oh, I mean, that's an, that's why I try to live it every day in honor of Braxton. But also, I don't think it's fair that the NCAA took away Ezekiel Elliott's ability to show his abs off while he's playing football. I think that was a mistake. I think football players should be allowed to do it. If they work hard, okay? They go through bat drills. They go through spring football. They go through all these things with Coach Mick. They should be able to roll their jersey up, show off their abs, and their back play. And you see Chase Young did it all last year, but he would obviously tuck it, tuck it in when the game was started. But he would come out. He would have it showing. They should be allowed to do that. They work hard for those abs. Let them show them off, especially if you're going to dominate. Yeah, those those '80s, like early '90s midriff uniforms. Those are those are choice. Meme it. What's a thing that happened that I think like have like if social media was a thing? Of course, social media was a thing back then. But like, what's what's the big meme? What's the gif? What's the what's the thing out of this game? I have a good one, but Stephen, what's yours? It's not the spin move Braxton Miller did. It's the spin move Cardell Jones did on the sideline after the play where um, it was probably, I think it was a trainer went out to shake his hand and he spun off of him and then he spun off one of his teammates. That's the meme because you can make something out of that just because of Cardell Jones's face as he's doing it. Yeah, I had the same moments before that. If you're watching the broadcast, they cut to the crowd and there's a woman in the crowd. She's with standing next to some guy. Uh, Virginia Tech fans, yeah. <laughs> and and she has this look on her face like, what? What just happened? This just like astonishment. She's like, she's holding a program or something. I don't know what they were, um, but she looked like she had just seen something that defied physics, which she kind of did. Um, those always, I, I love those moments, like these these great moments in sports history. And I'll cut to the crowd and somebody just like losing their mind or or reacting. Um, you know, it's like the the surrender cobra thing, like somebody reacting with just having been like knifed in the heart a little bit figuratively. Um, those are, those are the great meme moments. It's not so much the moment that happens. It's how did a person react to it? So mine is um, after Ezekiel Elliott dropped the punt and fumbled the punt, they show an Ohio state fan, an older gentleman with gray hair in the stands. And he looks like he wants to puke. It's like, you know, he's just like, oh, God, like he fumbled the punt. And I am 95% sure that the person they showed is Tim Kite, who is Ohio State's psychologist, who came up, who Urban brought in 
And oh my God, all anybody did was write a million stories about this guy. I don't know how much money he made from Ohio State, but his big thing was he came up with this wristband that people started wearing that they showed up at Big Ten Media Days one day, one year, and we all wrote stories about it. It was E plus R equals O. Event plus reaction equals outcome. And it was all about how like, you can't necessarily control what happens, but you can control your reaction to it. And then that will determine what the outcome is. And that psychologist guy was like, I can't believe Ezekiel dropped that pun. I'm going to throw myself out of the stands. And I was like, be a psychologist. So it was like, you would, if you, anyone rewatching this game, I'm, I, I'm sure it's him. And so when you watch that guy, just remember that guy who has that sour look on his face is the guy who's responsible for the um, emotional well-being of Ohio State football players as they play football games. It's like Ezekiel plus return opportunity equals zero good things happening. (laughs) (laughs) It's like you're, I mean, I get it. You're allowed to react to stuff, but I just, I thought it was, I thought it was so crazy. Um, The Maurice Claret game saving moment. So this is in reference to Maurice Claret ripping the ball away from Sean Taylor in the national championship game. Again, this is another texter idea. Great stuff from the texters on all of this. Um, what did you guys have for the game-saving moment, Nathan? We already talked about the Holmes play. Another one that I want to point out, though, and this is sometimes what you get from watching the actual broadcast, was at halftime they were talking about how uh, the Virginia Tech starting quarterback, um, what's his name, Mike? Michael uh, Brewer. Mike Brewer. Yeah. Um, you know, they asked him about some hit he took late in the first half, and they were like, he's like, oh, it's going to take more than that to get me out of this game. And then, like, milliseconds later, Adolphus Washington comes through and just squashes him. And uh, I thought he was playing pretty well up to that. I was actually kind of impressed with him. I thought he was managing the game pretty well. Uh, more than that, I mean, he has them out in front. He, he, he comes back. They're down 14 to nothing. He gets them back. They're leading this game at halftime against a team that's supposed to win a national championship or at least contend for one. And, um, and then they take him out of the game. It wasn't they were trying to take him out of the game, but I thought getting to him and having that be one of the outcomes that sometimes happens when a huge man falls on your quarterback, the, that swung the game a little bit in Ohio State's favor, obviously. Yeah, that was that was mine as well. He was actually the best quarterback in this game. 11 for 16, 156 yards and two touchdowns. And I mean, he just got beat up. And when he gets knocked out of the game, and I'm not going to say they had all momentum in their favor when he was playing, but they were up 17 to 14 at halftime. And he gets knocked out of the game. You lose your quarterback, your chances of winning a game go down significantly. So it's not a game-saving moment, but it's, you know, a momentum-swinging situation decision that their coaching staff made i think virginia tech maybe wins if he doesn't get hurt Mm -hmm. that was also mine 21 17 ohio state's ahead because they did come out and take the lead in the second half is 21 17 but then the broadcast the abc broadcast later showed in the 11 first 11 plays after brewer was knocked out they gained 20 yards total Virginia Tech did. And you guys mentioned it. Brewer uh, was 11 for 16, 156. The guy replaced him, Brendan Motley, was four of nine for 36. He sucked. I mean, that guy wasn't that guy. They didn't have a backup quarterback. And Michael Brewer was the guy who had beaten him the year before. He wasn't afraid. I mean, people know this. He's a Lake Travis guy. He's from the same high school that produced Baker Mayfield and Matthew Baldwin and Garrett Wilson. He's part of that lineage. Uh, And he was balling. He was making some plays. He was making some throws in the middle of the field. And you mentioned Tyquan Lewis and Adolphus Washington hit him earlier. They kind of sandwiched him. And he said that didn't knock him out. And then Adolphus 
absolutely destroyed him. He didn't land. I mean, he landed on him, but I think he, he hit him and then he landed on him. Like, I don't know which part hurt him, but I think they might have lost. Like, is that a bridge too far? Because yes, all this, but it's like, even like the play where Jalen Holmes rips the ball out, right? They end up having to run some stuff that they went to run because they couldn't throw anymore. They weren't a threat to throw. I just think the game would have unfolded completely differently. And it was a toss up at that point. I thought it was a contrast between a team that looked really comfortable on off a team that's really explosive on offense, Ohio state. And then the team that looked really comfortable on offense, which was Virginia tech. Now, part of that is you're playing at home, home crowd, um, all that stuff. And there's really actually less pressure on you because you're not the team that is, is expected to win that game necessarily. But I, I, I agree with you. I think that it, if, if Washington, if he doesn't get hurt on that play, who knows what happens. But also from just a game plan standpoint, Ohio State returned everybody. So it's, you're not really prepared to face a new team. Guys are just a year older. And, like, Michael Brewer had already beaten them. He'd beaten this group, this exact group before. So he'd been there before and knew what he was doing. So, yeah, I, I think Virginia Tech at home could have pulled this out. Now, we've seen over the years many times Ohio State plays close with people and then in the third and fourth quarter wears them down, right? In the last quarter and a half, throw their physicality, their talent, their training. You know, you lean on people and all of a sudden you just maybe stop messing around and you hand it to Ezekiel Elliott. You know, I'm not saying they, I'm not saying Ohio State would have lost for sure that the only reason they won is because Michael Brewer got knocked out, but it changed the complexion of the game so drastically that I think it would have been at least much closer. Uh, as opposed to, and we haven't mentioned the final score yet because I think we're trying to, you know, keep people interested. 42-24. It was a closer game than that, uh, certainly when Brewer was in the game. All right. These are our last three. I think these are the, mo- the three most important. They don't have cute names, but this is, this is what this is all about. Does this look like a championship Ohio State team? This was game one of the defending national champions. That is the ultimate question in every game Ohio State plays. I figured that out early on covering this team, especially when they play a bunch of crappy teams in the non-conference and a bunch of crappy teams in the Big Ten. Ohio State plays between six and ten games a year that are not in doubt at all. So the question is not, did they win? That's never the question on Saturday. It's not a second-day story. It's the constant first-day story. Every play, every moment, every game, do they look like a championship team? What did this Saturday tell us about the answer to that question? That is how everybody, that's how you look at Ohio State. It's rare, but that's how you do it. Steven, did this look like a championship team? No. And despite the talent-wise, obviously, yes. But no, it didn't. From the play calling to some of the throws Cardell was making to drop balls to, you know, muffed punts. No. Everything about this team would be where if they, when they, when they inevitably do lose a game during the season, you could point back on, Oh, all of these things that they lo- that they ended up losing for it in this game, they also showed themselves in week one and week two and week three. So no, this doesn't look like a this didn't look like a national ch- national championship team, especially now that we know what we know. Nathan, what do you think? On paper, it looked like a national championship team for sure. In execution, I I was less confident. Although you would have at the time, and maybe you can dispute this because you were there covering it. But at the time, you can look and say, well. The, the quarterback situation, they're, they're, they're figuring that out. Um, they were on the road against a team that they had lost to last year. Um, so you could, you could build in some things where you're like, you know, they still won. They were still up 42 to 17 before Virginia Tech scores late. It's, it was uh, both less and more comfortable than the final score would lead you to believe. So 
I, do I think it showed us that they could not win a national championship? No. Did it show us that they definitely had some things that they had to figure out? Absolutely. And I guess the, the ultimate, the end of that question was that they didn't actually do that, right? Correct. They did not win the national championship. Well, they um, didn't, but they didn't figure those things out. No, they, 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 they there were some, did. there were some self-inflicted things that prevented them from getting to championship contention. And I will say I was rereading what, you know, you were, it's a night game. You got to write your stuff live afterwards. So I was rereading what I wrote live after that game. And I, I was saying, you know, that it was, uh, it was like a lot of sort of like, it was like glittery, right? That it was like, there wasn't consistency. There wasn't smoothness, but it's like, well, they didn't play very well. Other than the 80-yard Ezekiel Elliott touchdown run, the route where Michael Thomas drove a first-round cornerback into the ground with a stop-and-go move, the two plays where Braxton Miller looked like he was a ballet dancer in the middle of the field, and those couple times when Cardale Jones looked like a Mack truck running over people. Other than that, it wasn't very good. That's what happens with Ohio State. It's like, man, they like play to play. It was like, kind of, what's up with this? And then there's like, it's not one big play. It's not two big plays. It's like, oh, well, if Virginia Tech could have eliminated these seven big plays, it's like, yeah, but you can't. They have too many guys. So there was that national championship pieces, obviously, which is what you guys are saying. National championship team, I thought they were undisciplined on defense at times. I thought, I, I thought Von, Von Bell got caught watching the ball. Darren Lee got caught looking in the backfield. Guys weren't just like locked up in coverage. I think they had so many experienced veteran playmakers on defense, they were trying to make plays instead of just being like, listen, man, you're better than the guy you're covering. Just cover the guy. So I thought there were a couple times on that that just kind of a lack of discipline. It's like, well, can the big plays always bail them out? Because you can be undisciplined, undisciplined, but hey, one of their great DBs is going to make an amazing pick. Or hey, you know, down the road, Joey Bosa is going to get a sack or Taekwon Lewis or that kind of thing. So you end up relying on big plays, but there was never the smoothness. The smoothness wasn't here now, the fluidity, and it never got there. So I do think pieces, yes. Team, no. I think I agree with both you guys. Before we get to our last two things on the enjoyment meter, I want to make sure we go over the box score real quick. 42-24, Cardale Jones, 10 of 19 for 187, two touchdowns, one pick. No, you're wrong. You're wrong. Nine of 18. The, the other completion is uh, JT Barrett's touchdown pass. Okay. Well, JT Barrett, I have that. I mean, I'm looking at the ESPN box score. So oh, ESPN's I'm looking wrong. At, okay, because okay, well, football reference has it at nine of eight to 18. But, okay. Ahead. Ezekiel Elliott, 11 for 122. Cardale Jones, 13 for 99, but they both scored a touchdown. Braxton Miller, 5 for 61, including – that's all on the – that's like how Braxton's running is. He had the 53-yard spin move run, and then his other four carries were four carries for eight yards. JT Barrett, one carry for 40. Oh, I, we didn't mention this. Warren Ball played. Isn't Warren Ball your friend? Yeah, Warren did get it. it was, I was happy for him. Why? He never you, really got the breakthrough, but, you know. He had three carries for 16 yards at the end. Did you go to high school with him, or he transferred to Kent State, or how are you friends with him? Oh, no, we went to high school together, but I've known Warren since, like, fourth grade. We played Pop Warner football <laughs> together. And he was always – he ran the exact same way as a fourth grader that he did as a high schooler. Um, so, yeah, so he had more yards in this game than uh, rushing yards than Curtis Samuel did. Uh, receiving, Braxton Miller, three for 79 and a touchdown. Michael Thomas, two for 46 and a touchdown. Curtis Samuel, two for 32. Johnny Dixon, want to make note, first catch of Johnny Dixon's career, one for 29. Ezekiel Elliott, two for 16. Nick Vanette, one for 31. Tyvis Powell had a pick. Jack Willoughby missed his only field goal, kicked six extra points. 
Cam Johnston, who I love, did not punt that well either. Um, all right, enjoyment meter, scale of one to a thousand, which opens up, you know, right at 671 or 813 or whatever you want to do. What, one enjoyment meter, and I, I think there are times when these will be very similar and there are times when they will be very different. One is the, over enjo the enjoyment meter just like from a college football perspective. If you're just a fan, you enjoy college football and you watch the game. And the other one is enjoyment from an Ohio State fan perspective, which is you know the team, you know the expectations, you're wrapped up in everything else. So we'll start with the general college football enjoyment meter. Nathan, what was your rating? I went with uh, – so this is on a scale of 1 to 1,000. 1 to 1,000. I went with uh, 800 because it doesn't have, you know, it's not a nail biter. It doesn't go down to the last minute or into overtime. And it's not a, uh, an upset because obviously if you're just a casual fan, you love upsets. You would have actually preferred if you're a casual fan, you probably prefer Virginia tech to come in and, and find a way to beat Ohio state because uh, that's, what's fun. That's what, that's what sports is all about. When, when the King gets kind of taken down, um, you did have some other things though. I mean, you ha had some intrigue, you had Virginia tech leading at halftime. You had the spin move, you had some other big plays. So I think there was enough there. And especially just considering it was kind of the showcase game a Monday night, you're just glad to have some college football on a Monday night. I gave it an 800. The jab, Steven. I went 850, and it's because as a casual fan, big plays are life. And all but one of Ohio State's six touchdowns were big plays. Outside of Cardo's 10-yard run for a touchdown, 80-yard touchdown run, you know, uh, Braxton Miller's 250-yard-plus touchdowns, uh, Curtis Samuel's 24-yard touchdown catch, big plays. And that's when you're a casual fan, you live for that because those are highlights. And it was ugly at times, but yes, but Ohio State scored in big plays all game. And that's, I mean, with that type of talent, you would expect that. Yeah, I agree with that reasoning. 900 for me, just because, yeah, it, there were enough highlights and it was, it was close at halftime. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's lots of college football games that are blowouts from the first quarter, you know. So this was a game into the middle of the third quarter and had a bunch of highlights. So I thought 900 from a casual fan. An Ohio State fan, however, Stephen, what'd you have? Uh, I went 550 because Ohio State fans can be critical and you can, you, it's the but we won isn't good enough with Ohio State fans. And I think they'd be able to point out a lot of the same things that we've been pointing out this entire podcast about what, what was so wrong. Um, they were happy to get the one. They were happy to see their team play again. They were happy to see Braxton Miller doing Braxton Miller things. But overall, I think some fans maybe walked away a little worried about mm, we won, but we didn't win the way we were supposed to win which is probably the Ohio State fan slogan. So you had you were 850 and 550. So that's a pretty yep. big gap between regular college football fan and Ohio State fan. Nathan, what'd you have for Ohio State fans? I went 700, and I understand why that may sound a little high. I, I agree with what Steven's saying, but I think you also have to remember, as we talked about, the, the, some of the things that were problems later, for instance, Braxton Miller not being Braxton Miller the rest of the season. Well, for that game, he was. He had those moments. Um, if you're talking about just a pure enjoyment um, capacity too. I mean, you have the spin move. You have Ohio State going on the road and beating a team um, at coming back from being down halftime without Joey Bosa. You're seeing some other guys step up. Um, you're seeing, you know, the, the quarterback play was not perfect, but you're, you, you know what the situation was there. And I think you can, can talk yourself into being optimistic about where that can go over the course of the season. Um, and, you know, again, you're, you're winning. I think at the end of the day, a win starts with a higher ceiling than a loss, obviously, but even um, a closer game. You're up by 18 with uh, – or, or whatever it was. You won by 18, but you're up by 25 with a couple of minutes left on the road. I, that, that's still fairly comfortable. And you avenged your only loss from the year before. Correct. a nice little bonus. And on the road. 
I also gave it a 700. So we all said it was less enjoyable for an Ohio State fan than for a casual football fan, though, right? So that was that was agreement on that. So so yeah, I'm a, I'm 900 for the casual fans, 700 for Ohio State fans, just because the expectations are so high, and you would come out of it, you know probably kind of thinking like, uh, I don't know. It was that. Cause you know, are we going to defend the national title based on that? There would have been things that you would have come out of there like a little, not worried about, but curious about, but I will say the highlights covered up a lot of stuff. And so it's always hard in the moment to get a sense of what what people are really feeling about the game and you're trying to write that sort of like that first draft of history um and what i wrote immediately after the game is that urban meyer so this is what i wrote no one expected the fireworks when virginia tech completed a pass to the two-yard line late in the first half against ohio state on monday premature explosions greeted the hokies the touchdown that put the Buckeyes in a halftime hole arrived three plays later. Later, That's what Urban Meyer chose. The Ohio State coach picked explosions. He staked his claim with his quarterback choice, Cardale Jones over JT Barrett, and everything that followed in number one Ohio State's 42-24 win over the Hokies was splashed with glitter and gunpowder. Braxton Miller's spin move. If you didn't see it, ask a friend. Jones was throwing spin moves on teammates on the sideline after the score and laughing. Monday night, that was the Ohio State audience. If that's the reward, Meyer might really enjoy these risks. The, meason, the season's menu may hold spicy entrees of excitement and glee with the occasional appetizer of panic. Um, it's like how much do the big plays cover up the lack of fluidity, the lack of every down competence, right? And it was the dance the whole year. It was the dance the whole year. So I do think it was a really interesting encapsulation in the end I mean, Stephen, you you followed along on this season. This this game as an opener, I think, really gives a good picture of what this season is going to be like in the end, right? As you look back, a lot of the good and the bad of what would become a year with wonderfully talented players who would go on to do amazing things, but ultimately would be about disappointment and not repeating – I felt you, you, you could feel almost every part of that in this one game. Which seems to be the theme of maybe this next, those next three or four years span of the, basically the end of Urban Meyer's tenure here with Ohio State is you always saw the thing that was going to cost you a game in week one or week two or whenever you played a team that wasn't you know, a MAC opponent where you weren't going to win the game 80 to nothing. You always saw whatever was going to lose you a game, it showed up in the first time you played any real talent. And for Ohio State, that was week one in 2015. You saw quarterback problems. You saw Ezekiel Elliott not nearly getting the ball as much as he should have. You saw Michael Thomas being basically an afterthought. This is the best wide receiver in the world right now, and he was an afterthought on his own college team. Joey Bosa didn't play, so you throw that out the window. You saw some of the issues with the defense, maybe looking at the backfield, and being maybe over-aggressive at times when they maybe shouldn't have been. You saw the best of what Braxton Miller was going to be as an Ohio State wide receiver. You saw all of that in week one, and – Basically, when the Michigan State game did arrive, it's like, oh, yeah, we saw all that in week one, and it never got fixed. I think that's true for most teams, you know, barring any injuries or, or other attrition yeah. along the way. But it wasn't – I mean, it's, it's – the difference is 
what shows up and then what do you do about it? Because the year before, something showed up pretty early. They lose a game at home to Virginia Tech, and what they do about it? They won a national championship. So I think that was maybe the difference here is that they didn't – it wasn't that they had the problems. It's that they didn't fix the problems that ultimately cost them. I mean, you look at even last year's Ohio State team, but even though those of us who thought they were going to be a pretty good football team, they come out and win that game against Florida Atlantic, and we're kind of like, hey, that was that was good, right? Like that, But it was, I don't think it was anything that like got us um, – too excited or too too um really piqued our thoughts of what that team was going to be and then they go out and they just open up cincinnati and you're like oh okay i think we need to start talking about this team in a different way and it's sort of just it's the progression i like this as an opener right i mean it was supposed to be we're, we're doing this obviously because there's not fall football at the moment and the original schedule had ohio state playing bowling green this saturday so you can watch this game instead and listen to this podcast. Um, the revised schedule that then didn't happen was would have had them playing at Illinois on Thursday night, but they often do their opener often is like a Mac team. And they often, they typically play their big non-conference game in week two or week three. That would have been the case this year. Oregon would have been in week two. I kind of liked that it was the opener and we wanted to do an opener for the opening week. And this was kind of the obvious one. So I, I did kind of like that vibe I think the plan, I don't know. People can stop listening now. I kind of like this. Nathan, what did you think of this whole, pro- this whole project? I liked revisiting it, having visited it the first time, but I also liked hearing what you guys had to say, having not covered it as reporters the first time around. Well, frankly, it's an exercise I need to do anyway. I just need to familiarize myself more with Ohio State history. If I'm going to write about Ohio State future and Ohio State present, that's, um, this is the reference point for a lot of things. So I'm, I'm thankful that we're having this exercise that sort of forces me into doing that, even though I should be doing it on my own. Um, but also, again, I think, that there, I think there are things that we see here that we can apply to the current team or the current program or the current state of things. I know it's a different coaching staff. Obviously all the players have changed over, but there are just sort of kind of universal truths. And even if it's not like something that perfectly applies to this year's team, it's also just something that that gives you a new, it it gives you a perspective that you can usually apply to what's going on in the present. And Steven, I I think we've talked about this point, but I want to get you specifically on this before we go. If Ryan day was the head coach of this team with these players, I don't think the offense would look the way it looked. I think I'm not going to say Cardell Jones would have thrown for 50 touchdown passes because that's just a ridiculous thing to ever throw out there about anybody because we didn't know Dwayne Haskins was going to do that. But I do think that the quarterback situation at Ohio State wouldn't have been an influx the way it was this in 2015, but it also wouldn't have had so many miscues in the recruiting in 2016 and 2017. I think it is a little bit of an example and we don't need to revisit. Well, we actually, we haven't revisited it enough. I mean, the defining thing of these two years was Ed Warner and Tim Beck failing as a play calling duo and Urban Meyer allowing them to fail. That was true in 2015. It was also true in 2016, which is why they only lasted two years running this offense. I think Urban Meyer likes strong assistants who have strong opinions. And when Tom Herman was here, Tom Herman helped lead Urban in a direction. Urban wanted to be led, but Urban wanted to do some up-tempo stuff. Tom Herman helped them do that. We've heard the stories in the 2012 Purdue game. Urban wanted to run one play at the end of the game. Tom Herman begged him and said, no, run this other play. They ran the Tom Herman play, and it worked. Um, Urban then probably got his way maybe at the end of the Michigan State game in the 2013 Big Ten Championship game on keeping the ball in Braxton's hands, and it didn't work. But I think Urban worked – at, at least in his Ohio State career, worked best with an offensive coordinator who pushed back on him. 
and brought out the best in Urban as Urban brought out the best in that offensive coordinator. I think Ed Warner and Tim Beck didn't do that. I think Ed Warner and Tim Beck weren't as strong, weren't as um, assured in their own beliefs as, as Tom Herman and Ryan Day were. And so we saw once they went to Dwayne Haskins in 2018, they didn't try to run. Now, Cardale is a much better runner than Dwayne. As you brought up, Nathan, we could see Cardale be effective there. But I still think if Ryan Day had been hired instead of Tim Beck, I think, they, I think Ryan Day would have been like, we can't do this with Cardale. I know that you like to run the quarterback, Urban. If we're going to play Cardale, we can't have Cardale have more rushing attempts than Ezekiel Elliott. It does not make any sense. And I don't think Ed Warner and Tim Beck, well, I mean, they weren't able to do it. I don't know if they tried to do it, but just I think their personalities, their stature, their belief in themselves, look where they are now. Tom Herman's the head coach of Texas. Ryan Day's the head coach of Ohio State. Ed Warner's the offensive line coach at Michigan because at heart he's an offensive line coach. And Tim Beck followed Tom Herman to Texas and got fired. So Tim Beck's at North Carolina State. So the proof's in the pudding. Who was better at their job? If you had given Urban Meyer, but you can't absolve Urban, but give him a strong offensive coordinator who would have shaken Urban out of his core beliefs and said, if you want to play Cardale, we've got to change this. I think you changed this season. So I think we had to mention that because people are going to be scarred. Ohio State fans are going to be scarred by the Ed Warren or Tim Beck offensive coordinator pairing for the rest of their lives as fans. All right. I had a great time. I hope people like this. I'm sure we're going to do it again. And I don't want to promise anything, but I have a game that we should do in week two. I already have it in my head. I'm not even sure we put it up for a vote because I think it's instructive for the two of you will be fun for our fans and matters in what week two was supposed to be this year. And it's the 2010 Rose bowl against Oregon against Chip Kelly, Terrell Pryor, the Jake Ballard pass, shutting down the Chip Kelly crazy offense, right? That was, that was a great Ohio State, Oregon game that we can do next week in the week where there's would have been supposed to be playing Oregon. So, you know, we're in charge of the podcast. We can do whatever we want to do, but we also don't have to match these up every week to like where they are in the schedule. We just want to do fun games, but that's a fun game. It's a fun prior game. It's a fun trestle game. It's a good win for Ohio State and it can teach us some stuff. So that's what I would recommend next, but I hope you guys enjoyed this. Texters, if you, I mean, we're, we're going to keep the categories. So if you're a texter who helped name the categories and we put it out to everybody and we picked one of yours, congratulations, you're in for the long haul. So thank you for that. We will continue to get your feedback on this. So let us know what you think. 614-350-3315. Did you like it? How could we improve it? Could, you know, what do you want to hear more of, less of? We're certainly open to that. But I think that was a pretty successful initial version of the Buckeye Retalkables. Who knows what's going to happen with other actual football? We'll keep monitoring that, but we're going to drop in this fun other stuff while there aren't games. So thanks for listening. That was an initial try at this on, for, for Stephen Means and Nathan Baird. I'm Doug Maurice, And that was a Buckeye Retalkable. <laughs>